This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 7th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about the stories we might have missed. The citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. And a bit later on today's show, we'll focus on sustainability in motorsports. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. In the US, Republican Kevin McCarthy has finally been elected House Speaker after 15 rounds of voting. It was the longest speaker contest in 164 years. The 118th Congress, which has now been sworn in, features a record amount of women, and Democrat Hakeem Jeffries has become the first black lawmaker to lead a party. Despite the Russian-ordered 36-hour unilateral ceasefire to coincide with the Orthodox Christmas, there appears to have been little effect on the ground in Ukraine, with Ukrainian officials accusing Russians of opening fire in several areas. A Ukrainian rescue worker was killed in a Russian strike, while Russian state TV said the city of Donetsk was hit. And Iran hanged two men today for allegedly killing a security official during nationwide protests that followed the death of 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman Masa Amini on September the 16th. Three others had been sentenced to death in the same case, while 11 received prison sentences. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now with our Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor, Stephen Diel. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everyone. And um, Happy New Year. Have we spoken? We have, but very briefly and over the phone. Yes, yes. It's the first time we've seen each other. So, yes, Happy New Year to you and to everyone listening. But how long can you say Happy New Year for? Uh, Do you know, uh, I I sound a real nerd because I battle that question every year in January. And I kind of think by about... Maybe the 20th, I'll stop, but then I'll see someone who I haven't seen for a long time, and it's a nice way to introduce the conversation. So um, it's a bit flexible for me. Well, not a very happy new year when you look at world events, sadly. <laughs> uh, definitely not. Uh, no. but, but finally, a happy result for Stephen McCarthy. 15th <laughs> attempt. Uh, he's been elected. The uh, um, House of Assembly has been... Uh, uh, the Congress has finally been voted in, so America can get on with the business of governing. They can get on with the business, but I mean, what does that say about the the whole situation? I mean, if it, you know, surely if you've had to make so many compromises and and you've fought f- through fifteen rounds, I mean, two rounds, you'd think, you know, oh well, you know, he obviously wasn't everyone's first choice, but <laughs> to to stick with it and go for fifteen, you just wonder how much authority he'll actually have. Exactly. Well, let's look at some of those compromises. What's he had to give ground on? Um, well, he's, the, the, it's all about a battle with the, the, the far right, the Trumpians, you might say, really. Um, uh, and um, 
uh, so sort of referring to the papers, um, of course, this came really after the, the deadline for the papers. So It was just after midnight, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, you know, the, the, t- the Times was still talking about Republicans fight to bitter end in standoff for soul of party. Um, so it's, it's really about, you know, is the Republican Party now an extreme right-wing party? Um, some of them want it to be that. Um, they are the, the Trumpians. Um, but it, it all hung on just a few votes of about five or six people, really, who, who were really digging their heels in. Um, so uh, it, it's, I mean, it's difficult to, to see exactly what what he's compromised on and what's what's actually going to stick. Because when you've, when you, he, he must have forgotten what he's compromised on anyway, because he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's had to try and win over people in so many rounds. Um, it just makes you think, well, surely the obvious thing would have been to put up a different candidate. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it, uh, that that should happen? And of course, there was huge. There was a huge row that he had on on the floor of the house, just around the fourteenth vote. He's finally got through. One cheering thing, though, is the diversity of of the makeup of the house. Of the whole house, yes. Um, as you mentioned in the headlines, you know, the the, the first person of colour who's uh, the the leading the house for the Democrats, more women than ever before. Um, it's uh, you know, that that is progress, um, but the real question will be, particularly with the with the U.S. ability to filibuster and to um, so th- therefore to to throw out good ideas. Um, you just you just wonder how much genuine legislation is going to get through. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, let's go on to another U.S. story, which is extremely disturbing. This is about a six-year-old. Yes, uh, awful story. We we we. It's horrible to say. We're almost used to hearing about school shootings in the USA. Um, this was something rather different. This was a six-year-old in the city of Newport News um, who clearly had taken a handgun into school uh, and shooting his teacher. Um, she is now uh, in hospital with life-threatening injuries. Um, the school, when asked, well, you know, don't you have uh, metal detectors? They said, well, we do, but we don't put all the children through them. Well, I mean, that's this surely is a red flag for the whole of America. I mean, um, whenever this happens, those of more liberal mind throw up their hands and say, look, we told you so. You know, there should be proper gun control in the United States. And this, uh, again, the Trumpians and the right wing say, you know, well, it's, you know, it's, it's our right to carry a gun. Um, I remember after one school shooting during President Trump's presidency, um, he, his, his solution to it was that the teachers should be armed. Uh, you know, this uh, produces this bizarre scenario. What you'd have had a six-year-old with a, with his teacher in a, you know, who draws first? It's it, it's just awful. Um, and I think it it you know it has hit a new low when you when you get a child of six. You know, he must have brought the gun in with him. He must have had this idea that he was going to shoot his teacher. He must be living in the the kind of environment that says, well, that's okay. That's how we behave. And have an, a ready access to a gun. And have ready access, indeed. Yes, I, I'm. Uh, I was um, visiting some American friends um, a couple of years ago in Pennsylvania, and um, we were taken to my friend's son-in-law. Um, where he showed us his his arsenal of weapons. Uh, my friend was not terribly pleased about it, and that his daughter and grandchildren are living in this house. Um, but admittedly, he had a safe uh, that, where, where he kept all his guns, but he also proudly showed us the little pistol he was going to give his daughter on her second birthday. Oh, 
Yeah. And you've got to also wonder about the effect of reporting on school shootings. When a small child sees somebody, uh, not exactly lionised, but certainly getting a huge amount of publicity for doing something like that, uh, is it any wonder that small children are influenced when they don't understand the nuances of it all? Indeed. I mean, and, and, uh, that, that, that to me is, is one of the, the main points about all this, that it's that environment, it's that idea that guns are a part of life and I'm sure that the six-year-old wouldn't even understand what it meant to kill someone and it's just, you know, oh yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen this on, on the TV and, uh, and you know, this, this teacher has been unkind to me as he sees it and so um, this is my answer to it. I mean, and it's that lack of understanding. I mean, a you know, six-year-old is just beyond belief, but it's true. And of course, we do see death reported in our papers every day in every which way, particularly in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, now, lots of reports about the ceasefire. Russian demanded a unilateral ceasefire for the Orthodox Christian Christmas. Uh, that doesn't seem to have held. No, I don't think anyone ever believed it would. Uh, you and I discussed this, in fact, on the Daily on Thursday when it was first announced. Um, uh, um, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, uh, said, well, let's have a ceasefire for Orthodox Christmas because, because today is, is Christmas Day in most of the Orthodox Church. Um, and uh, that in itself was so cynical because Kirill has been a great supporter of the war. I mean, it's very difficult to, to take the Russian Orthodox Church seriously as a as a religion because they have been so in hock to Putin uh, and Putin has used them mercilessly ever since he he, uh, he took over as president um, uh, 22 years ago, uh, 23 years ago now. Um, and it's, it's, it's in a strange position, the Russian Orthodox Church, because all, it, was, it was not banned during Soviet times, but you were persecuted if you were a believer. A lot of the church, a lot of the, the, the clergy had to co- cooperate with the KGB, the secret police. Um, then they get that burst of freedom and there was a huge interest I remember I made a radio program about it in the early 90s about the the church in Russia and I remember interviewing this priest and I said you know has there been a, uh, an upsurge in, in people coming to church and he, he went oh my dear boy you don't understand it's such a huge upsurge we really need to have more priests um, and they sort of they kind of fast tracked priests through and that was you know the 90s were a crazy time in Russia but there was genuine religious freedom now I would say there's not religious freedom because it's now so tied into Putin. And this idea that, that they could should call for a, a, um, a ceasefire and then backed by Putin um, was totally cynical to start with. And indeed, the Ukrainians are saying, well, <laughs> you know, we weren't going to fall for it, for one. And secondly, it hasn't worked. The Russians have been attacking them on the front line in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and of course, they are replying. They, they were not going to observe a ceasefire because they knew that the Russians wouldn't in the first place. Mm. Now, one of the uh, facilities or some of the facilities that Russia is attacking are uh, electricity supply stations or power power stations. Uh, and uh, some power workers have been interviewed on the problems with resupply of equipment. Yes, it's a um, very interesting piece um, uh, on page 41 of the uh, this morning's Times. Um, power plant staff on front line of Putin's energy war and uh, their reporter Mark Bennett has, has gone to 
an unnamed, not surprisingly, unnamed destination in Ukraine uh, to, to to meet the power workers. Um, and they, they are saying, you know, we work day, I quote, we work days and nights to get things back up and running again after attacks. Uh, we sleep a few hours at night when, whenever we can. Everyone's willing to work around the clock to keep the power on. There's a limit, though, to what we can do without new equipment or spare parts. And that that's that's the crucial thing. So far, they have done an incredible job. If you think of the number of waves of missile and drone attacks that the Russians have thrown at, um, uh, at civilian energy, um, yes, they've knocked it out for a few hours, but the Ukrainian power workers have done an amazing job in, in bringing it back. Um, if, if Putin thought this was going to break the Ukrainian spirit, then it's just yet another and a long litany of mistakes that he's made over this war because, of course, it just makes people even more determined. Mm. Um, and as long as they can keep getting supplies. So it's now, it's not just military supplies that Ukraine needs from the West. It, it is things like transformers and, and generators and so on, which which are being sent in as well. So um, long may that continue because this is just, I mean, it's this, this is an absolute war crime. There's no two ways about it. Um, that resolve of the Ukrainians is picked up in a, in a lovely article in The New Yorker uh, by the novelist Dave Eggers, who says the profound defiance of daily life in Kyiv. And he talks about how in, in the capital, Ukrainians track the trajectory of Russian missiles on smartphone apps, but they refuse to be defeated by fear, which is a, a great story. Uh, and on, on still the subject of Ukraine and Russia, uh, we go to the FT now. Yes, um, just following on from what you've just said, I think there's a, there's a beautiful photograph on the front of the FT weekend um, uh, just related to the ceasefire and to Christmas of a, uh, of a Ukrainian girl smiling, wrapped in a traditional headscarf. It's just... A, a, a little glimpse of of joy um, in in what is there's not a lot of joy in Ukraine at the moment. But the the main story inside on page six, Putin changes narrative to brace Russians for long conflict, and it goes back to Putin's New Year address, um, which of course was totally different from anything ever seen before. Normally, the, the president, be it uh, Putin or Medvedev or Yeltsin before them, um, would appear with the Kremlin in the background, a bit of snow and so on, and 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 saying, you know, good luck for the new year and so on. It might have been tough last year, but it's going to be better. All the, the usual things you'd expect from a leader on new year. But this time Putin appeared surrounded by soldiers um, and uh, was really that, that's, that message that he was giving then, that really bringing the war to the forefront. When he started this war on the 24th of February last year, um, he, of course, he refused to let it be called a war and people were sent to prison for calling it a war. And it was a special military operation to, to free Ukraine from Nazis. Um, now it is clearly he's, he's ramping up the idea that Russians got to be used to the fact that there's a war. Because what we saw a lot last year was that Russians, say, in, particularly in Moscow or St. Petersburg, where they took very few recruits from, they would live their normal lives. Uh, and um, what he now seems to be doing is... is stepping up the fact that um, actually you can't just live your normal life. You've got to be aware that, you know, we are we are fighting. He claims they're fighting to defend their motherland, which, of course, is nonsense because it's, Ukraine is a foreign country. Um, and his, his whole tone this week, um, the fact that the Ministry of Defence admitted, first of all, that 63, and then they said 89 people had died in the attack on the building in Makievka, um, where raw recruits were stationed right next to an ammunition dump, um, they tried to blame some of the recruits by saying, oh, well, it was your phones with the New Year messages that that meant that the Ukrainians could pick it up. Um, 
it, it's just poor organisation yet again by the military to have to have allowed that to happen in the first place. Um, they then showed even on Russian TV memorial services in Samara, where a lot of these uh, recruits were from. Um, one thing that there is speculation, and indeed in this article, in uh, a very good article in the FT, speculation that this could be leading to another call-up. Remember in September, Putin called up 300,000 uh, young men. Um, he doesn't care how many people he uses. I mean, it really, this really, they really are cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these, these, these guys who were killed in Makievka were raw recruits. We know that recruits have been sent to the front line with no training, but maybe half a uniform and weapons that don't work. Um, he, he just to him it's, it's an obsession now that he must win this war he realizes it's, it's gone badly um, and it, it does seem that within Russia there's this ranking up of of, of the um, of the whole message to say he even used the word war actually once which which angered a lot of people who've been sent to prison for it um, uh, and so he does seem to be suggesting you know we, we've really got to uh, everyone's got to take part in this fight now um, and that could go down two ways. Some Russians will say, yes, you know, we, we support the president, we will support it. Um, others will become even more worried about what it's going to do because there's a quotation from Lenin uh, that says that every imperial war that fails ends in civil war. Um, now, you may look at history and say it's not exactly the case. In, in Russia, it has been the case. Um, and this is certainly an imperial war. Putin wants to recreate the empire and then sees Ukraine as mm. part of that. Well, if he fails... Um, there are going to be repercussions in Russia. Now, the FT is less guilty of this than other papers, but uh, one is having to leaf through at least half the paper to get to these stories that really matter to all of us, to the important stories, because the first half of the paper is completely filled with royal news, particularly uh, Prince Harry and his upcoming book, which is released tomorrow, I think. Why, Stephen, why? Excuse me while I yawn. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean... It's obviously the royal family in Britain is a, is 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 a very much a part of our society. Um, the Queen died last year. We now have King Charles, um, and we also have. <laughs> I think it's fair to say this spoilt brat Harry, uh, who's gone through a strange um, path in his life, in his young life, um, where it, when he was a. Uh, a teenager and, and in his early 20s and there was a, still people talk about the incident uh, he wore a Nazi uniform to a fancy dress party which and people thought what an idiot he's now blaming that on his brother apparently. now he's blaming that on his brother in the book apparently <laughs> yeah um, but then he created the Invictus Games for war veterans um, which have been hugely successful and that's where you know he should have he should have sort of left it at that and then and then lived his life quietly off that wherever he wanted to wherever with whomever um but no, uh, clearly behind the scenes, as in any family, there were rows about you know, who you marry or, or um, all sorts of things. Mm. Um, but I mean, one of, the, one of the serious points that's arising from this is that he claims to have killed 25 members of the Taliban and many members of the armed forces are saying, you just never say that. Absolutely. No, that is, so, that's, so he's gone beyond, uh, oh, I'm having a go at my own family to say, you know, well, don't call me a war hero, but, you know, yeah, of course I killed 25 at ta Taliban because that's what I had to do. And, um, yeah, that now he's, you know, he, if, as if he hadn't upset enough people, he's now upsetting the military and the people he served with who are saying, you know, you just don't do that. Um, the, the headline in The Times, he has betrayed military's trust like he has betrayed his family. Mm. Um, you just wonder, uh, who is he trying to appeal to? 
Um, and why? And and why? I mean, <laughs> you're rich. You've got a happy life in California. Just go off. I mean, one thing I think the reason that this appeals so much is that you've got this absolute kind of fairy tale of a story. This is the kind of story that has appealed to us for centuries. You've got, I mean, it's Shakespearean really, isn't it? You've got these warring brothers, you've got beautiful princesses, <laughs> you've got the line of succession, you've got deaths, you've got uh, conspiracy theories about murder. All of it comes together in this great real life story. But it's so sad that it's playing out on our front pages. Yeah, not only the front page, the inside page. I'm turning yeah. the pages of the Times just sort of seeing how many, how many pages there are. Absurd. It really is. I mean, it's. it's there it's, are six full pages inside <laughs> of the Times. This is not. This is not the gutter press. This is the Times, supposedly not gutter press. Um, mud slinging must stop to heal rift. Warn mental health experts. Um, I'm afraid poor Harry's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's turn to Andrew Muller now because he's got some very serious stories about, well, the sex drives of walruses, amongst other things. <laughs> We learned this week of what felt ominously like the arrival of 2023's guiding metaphor. For we, well specifically the citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough, learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. For we learned in the ebbing hours of 2022 that the shoreline of Scarborough's harbour had been unexpectedly adorned by a large male arctic walrus. Which proceeded, presumably by way of relaxing after its long swim, to indulge in actions which caused onlooking parents to frantically improvise placatory answers to the innocent wide-eyed question, Mummy and or Daddy, what is the walrus doing? As if this wasn't sufficient to thoroughly remove the romance from the looming New Year for Scarborough's, local authorities decided to cancel the town's New Year fireworks for fear of alarming the creature, or perhaps just putting him off his stroke. We further learned that the locals had named the walrus Thor, as indeed he will be if he doesn't give it a rest. We're here all year. Try the clams, cockles and mussels, which we learned while researching this bit is what walruses eat. Satirical, yet informative. We learned anyway that Thor had wearied of what Scarborough had to offer fairly swiftly, wouldn't be the first, etc., and had continued north, next spotted in Blythe, napping on a pontoon at a local yacht club. And we learned, or at least deduced, that Thor had clearly done some preparatory research before embarking upon his voyage along England's northeast coast, for he had wisely skipped Hartlepool. This observation is not any reflection on modern-day Hartlepool, and a big hello to our many listeners there, but an extremely cheap joke alluding to the persistent legend that during the Napoleonic Wars of some while ago, the denizens of Hartlepool tried, convicted, sentenced, and hanged a shipwrecked monkey in the belief that it was a French spy. So it is anyone's guess what the Hartlepoolians would have made of an entire walrus. However... Jet plane, don't know when I'll be back again. 
Sticking with the subject of bellicose oafish, manalus and somewhat corpulent creatures fleeing northwards, we learned that recently unelected Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro was not minded to stick around and hand over the pertinent ceremonial sash to his successor, as a good sport should. We learned that like many, a cranky, tangerine-hued retiree before him, Bolsonaro had decamped to Florida, the and-finally state, and that led us to learn, not for the first time, that there are few more reliable ways to pad out a whimsical news monologue than typing the phrase Florida man into Google News, from which we learned that a Florida man has been summonsed after attending a basketball game with a Pomeranian dog dyed to resemble the Pokemon character Pikachu. What? What's the point? What's the point? I understand that. Solid start to 2023, Florida man, and we, for one whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to another productive year of working together. Can I take your order, please? But we digress. We further learned from Bolsonaro's Florida flit something of the culinary preferences of the runaway president after he was spotted dining in a Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet, an image which furnished us with two possible punchlines. One was about cannibalism, chicken-eating-chicken sort of thing, which, to be honest, may still need work, the other along the lines that Bolsonaro perhaps wished to interact with the only colonel who will still take his orders. Probably what's easiest all round is if you download the file of this episode, clip out the gag you like least, and then play it again. Why should we do all the work? And we learned that every indication is that the United States Republican Party intends to spend this year, as it has spent the several years preceding, having a normal one. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I rise today to nominate Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the People's House. We learn not only of the lengths to which Congressional Republicans as a whole will go to enable themselves to continue brawling over absolute nonsense instead of doing any actual governing or anything, but we also learned that the GOP spiral into lunacy may have some further helter to skelter, judging by the quality of their new intake. For we learned quite a lot about this guy. Look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. Specifically, we learned that George Santos, now representing New York's 3rd District, and well done New York's 3rd District, is not counter to various claims he made while campaigning, a university graduate, a property tycoon, a Wall Street financier, Jewish, the son of a 9-11 victim, or possibly actually called George. We learned that he is, however, wanted in Brazil for using a stolen checkbook. Still, if there's one thing we have learned before now, and from which we can derive considerable consolation, it's that clowns, frauds and grifters from New York hardly ever get anywhere in American politics. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew. Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. 
This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today, or subscribe to get instant access online. Zurichista. Da Londra. Is Tokyo. Van Hong Kong. Astronto. Ijid Los Angeles. Monocle 24 ga okurishimasu. Now, in 2019, Formula One launched its plan to be net zero carbon by 2030. It followed a report into its environmental impact that revealed the championship was responsible for generating more than a quarter of a million tonnes of CO2 emissions a season. Nearly three years later, what's the sport doing to meet this ambitious target? Monocle's Emily Sands went to find out. Formula One, a sport that started in the 40s, has now turned into a multi-billion dollar industry, travelling all around the globe every year to bring us nine months of jam-packed high-intense racing to crown the next world champion. But in those last eight decades, the world has changed significantly, and as a result of that, sustainability is a topic that is at the forefront of any organisation's business model. And motorsport has the perception of being one of the most harmful sports when it comes to the release of carbon emissions. In 2019, Formula One announced that they would be setting out a series of commitments to have a net zero carbon footprint by 2030. I spoke to Inga Stracker, a Formula One broadcast partner for Germany, Austria and Switzerland and sponsor of Make-A-Wish Foundation, to get a better understanding of what those plans are. For Formula One, it is a challenging approach, but at the same time, they know that they need to do it. It includes delivering 100% sustainable fuels. That is going step by step in a few years' time. I think it's well needed. I think it's um, very important. And also pointing out that that means Formula One is not just looking at the fuels. It's looking at biofuels. They're looking at events, talking with their race promoters and the on-site people at every race. They're looking at their own operations. They're also looking at diversity and inclusion. So it is an overall program. It's super interesting. And if you know Formula One as I do for many, many years, it's great to see. However, in September this year, Formula One announced that they would be increasing the amount of races for the 2023 season. This would leave us with 24 separate race weekends, the highest number of races planned for a season in the sports history so far. There was speculation that this was a huge step backwards in the goal to being carbon neutral by 2030. In general, a lot of the people involved working in Formula One, especially mechanics and such, who really are on the road a lot, they think it's too many races. But then again, it's all about the show. It's all about the money. Formula One has already said that they are looking at the calendar to make it even more, to design it more environmental friendly with races like Canada and the US and um, South America, grouping them together. A common misconception in the sport is that the race cars are the reason why CO2 pollution is so heavy at race weekends. But this isn't the case. Logistics are the main contributors. In 2021, data collected showed that 45% of the total 265,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions came from logistics and fan travel. Of course, it's good for every sport to have more fans, more action, new races, good for the sport. The drivers have been two-sided. People like Sebastian Fetlev said 
if you put in more races, there has to be a cut where it's too many and where there can't be more added. Also look at the calendar, look at the transportation, look at everything that is involved and see if you can still achieve the sustainability goals that should be above everything. Four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel has been very vocal about climate change in general and also within his beloved sport. He mentioned that Formula One's approaches to sustainability influenced his retirement at the end of 2022. But are statements like this from the sportsman himself enough to influence the FIA and Formula One into making wiser decisions moving forward? I think they already have listened and they already have changed their ways, not just because of Sebastian Vettel. I would have wished for him to continue racing because as an active racing driver, he does have or he did have a very loud voice, just like Lewis Hamilton with his diversity programs, with his actions that he's taking, with his uh, foundation that he has started, where he's really actively making changes, not just talking. After a lot of planning, BWT, official partner for Formula One and Alpine Formula One team, have been working to achieve Formula One's commitment to becoming 100% sustainable at race weekends by 2025. This began this year, as Formula One issued a list of six important steps that must be taken into consideration by all track promoters. Reducing plastic waste, evaluating local fan travel, the upkeeping of well-being and nature, the local communities, energy and carbon. Pirelli, Formula One's tyre supplier, has also been working to attain sustainable goals within tyre disposal. Well, Mario de Isola, the Pirelli motorsport chief, he said they're already looking and already working with an increase of renewable materials. They are working to the elimination of single-use plastics from on-track activities. And they are also working on an overall CO2 emission reduction by actually having only 25% by 2025. They also look at green energy electricity. And they're also looking at recovering valuable materials from motorsport tires at the end of their lives. So I think good potential, very high potential of increasing sustainability and therefore helping not just Formula One, but motorsports overall. I asked Inga about Formula E, the single-seater electric racing series, and the chances of them possibly overtaking Formula One with their sustainability goals. Formula One has a lot more chances than Formula E because Formula One can work with the biofuels, with the green fuels. They have the most efficient hybrid engine and that can be seen as a leading example that can be looked at by all car manufacturers actually who are already or planning to produce hybrid engines. And that in combination with the sustainable fuels can actually be, and don't get me wrong, be better for the environment and more sustainable than Formula E unless... Formula E is able to produce their electricity 100% with green energy. And I'm hoping that Formula One will stay ahead of Formula E and they won't be overtaking them. Although it's going to be a long journey to get to 2030, it's evident that Formula One are aware of their impact on climate change and they are working hard and ensuring that their fans and workers can rely on a better racing net zero carbon future. Many thanks there to Emily Sands. And that's it for this edition of Monocle on Saturday, which will return at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. There's much more from me throughout the day, so do stay tuned. But for right now, for me and the rest of the Monocle on Saturday team, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>